Welcome to the Faculty Podcast of Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. We have a special treat for this episode. We are going to post a recording of an address that was given here at the RTS Washington campus on January 23rd. It was an evening lecture given by Dr. Christopher Watkin. Now, Dr. Christopher Watkin is a senior lecturer in French studies at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, but he has also written a very important book that has just recently come out called Biblical Critical Theory. And so in this evening's lecture, he's going to be introducing the audience to this idea of critical theory from a biblical lens. And to do that, he is going to be laying out particularly the methodology that he uses in this book. Uh, He himself says that his passion, his desire for this kind of inquiry into how Christians see the world and how they analyze the the cultural cultural and historical movements around them uh, comes out of a deep desire to have a rich reading of the story of Scripture and to marry that to an interest in understanding how people make sense of the world around them. So with that very brief intro, let me hand it over to Dr. Watkin. Thank you very much indeed, Ray, for those really kind words of introduction. Um, Thank you to Jennifer and everybody else who's put a lot of work in behind the scenes. I saw some rapid vegetable chopping going on earlier this evening. Thank you to everyone who's who's done lots of different things to make this possible. And thank you to all you guys for coming out. I was just talking to um, a couple of people uh, as people were coming in and and we've all got busy lives, haven't we? And making time for an evening like this is not a a simple thing. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and I'm grateful that you've made time uh, to come out for an event like this, and I will try my very best um, to, to offer you something to, to encourage you and to make it worthwhile uh, for you to have put on hold whatever other plans it may have been that you had this evening uh, in order to, to be here instead. Everybody here, I am sure, will at least once in our lives have had a stubborn itch. I'm not talking about those little itches that you, you know, give them a little scratch and they're gone. I'm talking about those deep, sort of subcutaneous itches. Um, you might even been an itch that your doctor told you not to scratch. And you're sort of watching television or doing something, you just, oh, let's give it a little scratch. What's the, what's the harm in that? Oh, that felt good. Before long, you've got the nails out. You're going for it like some Olympic sport. And then 10 minutes later, blooded but satisfied, you breathe. Is this only me? You breathe a a huge sigh of relief uh, that your itch uh, has now been scratched. Um, And that that is sort of a a physical version, I guess, of of the experience of writing this book for me. Uh, It was a way that I could thoroughly uh, and very satisfyingly scratch an itch that I'd been feeling for a long time. I want to begin by describing what that itch was. It sort of arose, really, from the experience of, one way of describing it would be of living in two different worlds as an undergraduate. Uh, So on one hand, there was the world of my studies. I did um, a a sort of a literature and philosophy-based modern language degree. 
And so each week we'd be thrown a pile of books by either Marx or Freud or Nietzsche or Kristeva or Simone de Beauvoir or someone like that. And we'd have to, to churn an essay out on them really quickly. Um, and, and it was an exhilarating world. I, I, I loved it because here were some people who were asking the big questions about life and, and meaning and, and truth and love and all these things that, that really matter in life. And, and it struck me that all these very different approaches were, were all doing three things, more or less. That they were making certain things in the world viable, making certain things visible, and making certain things valuable. So viable in the sense of, you know, you might live for a number of decades in our society and <laughs> never think uh, that a socialist revolution is possible. Uh, and then, you know, you immerse yourself in Marx and you see how it works and how he argues for it. And you may, some people have, come to the conclusion that, my golly, it, it, it is actually possible that something like that might happen for us. And, and the, the theory has made that thing viable for you, part of the, the things that you think are possible in the world. And cri critical theories also make certain things visible. Um, so canonically, uh, people have called our attention to the way in which women over the centuries have been oppressed in society. And it, it may be that that's not something that, that everybody was aware of, but the critical theory say, look at this, look at how it works, look at what society's doing, making things visible. And making things valuable as well. Uh, so for example, uh, a lot of the critical theories that I was studying were, were saying things like, it's really good to challenge and transgress norms in society. That, that should be valuable to you. You should want to do that. You should think that that is good. So that was the first world. The second world that I was also living in as a relatively young Christian at that stage was, was the world of my church and my Christian union and my Christian friends at university. And it was a world in which we were taught to take the Bible seriously and read it slowly and think carefully about how to apply it to the whole of life. And as I did that, it struck me that these three categories of making things viable and visible and valuable are a not too shabby way to describe one thing that the Bible is doing as well. Now, the Bible is doing more than this, of course. It's, it's the, the word of God. It makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, etc. All of that. And also, is the Bible not making certain things viable for us? For example, many people today would, would think of trusting God's promises as, as laughable. It's not that they choose not to, it's, it's that, that that's just a ridiculous thing to claim. And then you read the Bible and you see how God reveals his character and you, you gradually come to the position where you say, okay, well, I can see how that might work. I can see what trusting this sort of God would look like. It's become viable for me in my world. Uh, and the Bible also makes certain things visible, doesn't it? You know, the heaven declares the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. You might never have looked up at a sunset and thought, wow, God is so glorious before. But the psalm sensitizes us to that. It makes it visible for us in a way that it may not have been visible in our conscious minds previously. And the Bible also certainly makes certain things valuable, doesn't it? You know, the widows and orphans in society that we may have disregarded previously, we can't read far into the Bible without thinking these are people who are very precious to God and therefore should be very precious to me as well. Uh, or, or, or perhaps of thinking as I did, uh, that, wow, serving others is, is really important from a biblical point of view in, in a way that I hadn't really grasped. You know, my 15-year-old self had never really thought of serving others as something that I wanted to aspire to in life. And, you know, you 
read the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And, you know, Paul says, have this same mind in you as, as Christ Jesus had who made himself nothing. You think, well, okay, that is something that I should value. That is something to be sought after. And so the Bible is doing these three things as well, coming to very different conclusions, of course. But it is making certain things viable and, and visible and valuable. And it, it struck me that surely then there is a conversation to be had uh, with these different critical theories who've got different senses of what's viable and visible and valuable and, and, and the Bible, who has its own bespoke sense of all of these things. And, and wouldn't it be helpful for everybody to, to, to have a conversation? But of course, there was no way in which in the subjects that I was studying at the time, I could say, hey, what, what about the Bible? Shall we, shall we bring that into the conversation? Um, and, and, and there was also little room in the sort of church circles in which I was moving to, to bring these critical theorists into conversation uh, with the Bible. And so that was, that was the itch. How do we do that? What does that look like in a biblically faithful way to, to get that conversation going? And, and two things really happened to show me what that conversation could look like. And the first one was that I'm afraid to admit that I became an addict. Um, I was addicted to Bible overviews uh, from the first one uh, that I <laughs> was just, tension in the room. Where's he going with this? Well, is this really reformed theological seminary stuff? Bible overviews. Okay, that's it. That's no more, no more addictions that I'm sharing. Anyway, um, and and the, the 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 intoxicating brilliance of the first Bible overview that that I was ever on the receiving end of was the realization that the Bible isn't just a collection of, of stories from God with extremely important meanings. But, but from, Revelation, from Genesis 1 right through to Revelation 22, it is one multi-layered, complex, but coherent story. Story not just simply in our universe, but the story of our universe, the story that makes sense of our universe, and a story inside which we can live, so to speak that makes sense of, of us and the world around us and everything for us. Uh, and that was mind-blowing and, and really thrilling. I, I still remember the feeling I can picture it in my mind now of doing that first Bible overview. Uh, it, it, it was something like having gone through life thinking that the, the peak of musical achievement uh, was a toddler uh, repeatedly banging a pan with a wooden spoon. Um, I do, I'm afraid, speak from bitter, bitter experience <laughs> about that and thinking that this is as good as music gets. And then having um, a wonderful opportunity, as, as Alice and my wife and I did uh, a few years ago, to go and hear uh, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony played in a, a symphony concert hall uh, and suddenly realizing, oh my goodness, there's so much more to this uh, than I ever thought. Um, so that was the first thing uh, that, that sort of, the first penny that dropped for me to think, okay, I can see this conversation will, will need to take that biblical theological view, that arc. The second thing that happened was that I read um, Augustine's City of God for the first time. Um, again, I remember exactly where I was. It was a, a rainy weekend uh, in Bridlington, the Yorkshire seaside town. Aren't they all rainy, I suppose, uh, over there? But it, it rained all week and I was there with my parents on holiday and there wasn't a huge amount to do other than stay inside and read. Uh, and I don't remember why I'd brought The City of God with it. I think it, you sort of have a sense that it's one of those books that you ought to have read. Um, and I thought, oh, let's just let's just crunch through this and you know see see what. Oh my goodness, wow! 
I remember two things about the book. First of all, most of it I didn't understand. <laughs> all, all the references to these different Roman heroes and gods, I, I just straight off my head. But the second thing that I remember is the bits that I did understand were absolutely electrifying. Because what Augustine was doing in the, the first half of the book was taking a an, an sort of 360-degree view of late Roman society, it, its games and its politics and its religion and its everything, and, and sort of picking it apart and showing how it doesn't quite fit together and how the stories the Romans tell about themselves don't work. And then in the second half of the book, he was doing what has so thrilled me about the Bible overview. He starts right at the beginning and he tells the story of the Bible right through, all the way to the end, as a way of, of framing and, to use John Milbank's language, out-narrating Rome. This is a better story than your story and it makes sense of you in a way that you can't make sense of yourselves, dear Romans. Um, and so from that point on, I knew this is what I wanted to try to do, to sort of hold a, you know, a flickering candle up to the blazing sun of the, the city of God and try and walk um, uh, very, very imperfectly in those, uh, in those sort of footsteps of the, um, the way that Augustine had, had done his cultural critique. So there are many other steps along the way, uh, but I will, I will save you uh, the, uh, uh, the boring details. The, the book got written. And I've been asked to say a few words about sort of the method of the book and, and sort of a, almost a meta sort of analysis of what I'm doing, which is a little bit strange. So I'm talking about someone else, but let me have a go. And what Watkin tries to do in the book. It's, um, so the, the first thing, the first thing that, that I think um, is, is important to say is that, that I try in the book to focus on different patterns and, and rhythms and ways of thinking that repeat themselves. Some, some of them in the modern, late modern society in, in which we live and some of them in the Bible. Let me just give you one example very quickly of each. Um, many of you will be familiar with the work of Michael Sandel uh, and his book, What Money Can't Buy. He's um, a, a philosopher, sort of a, a political philosopher. Uh, here in the States. Uh, and, and his argument is that we, we no longer have simply a market economy in society. He says we actually have a market society now. That, that this logic of the market, this idea that everything has a price and everything is exchangeable uh, and there's a market value for everything has sort of leaked out from the, the financial sector and has sort of in, in infected our relationships and, and anything can be bought now. Security, love, anything. Um, and that would be, to the extent that we share that diagnosis, that would be a figure. So this idea of the market that sort of spreads out and becomes indicative of, of society as a whole, that's the sort of thing I mean by rhythms and patterns. And then to, to choose one from the Bible, if you think about the way in which God almost delights, it seems, in flouting these sort of calculable rules of the market, at significant points. A philosopher, Paul Ricoeur, who I lean on quite a lot in the book, calls it the logic of superabundance. You know, it's, the, it's the how much more of Paul, isn't it, in the New Testament? It's the fact that God, it seems, did not need to create this universe. He wasn't compelled to do so. There, there wasn't some sort of logic that forced him to do so, but it, it was a, a an overflow of, of superabundant love, as far as we can tell. It's the Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord in Genesis 6. It just comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Like nothing, nothing in the situation scripts that moment. 
Like that, it, that is not just a, a logical outworking of everything that went before. Um, it's, it's even God being gracious to Adam and Eve at the moment that he's, he's throwing them out of the garden. You know, he makes clothes for them. He gives Eve that wonderful promise, doesn't he? You know, your offspring will crush the Satan's head. There's a, there's a lavishness, a, a, a givingness, an, a superabundance, a non-market calculation-ness, if you like, um, to, to, to God. And this logic of superabundance. So that would be one example of, of a biblical figure, something that over and over again seems to characterize how God works, what he does, how he interacts with this world. So those are figures. And then the, there are two ways that I um, came to of, of trying to understand how the Bible interacts with, with modern culture. Neither of them are new, neither of them I invented, but I found them incredibly useful. The, the first one I give the label to in the book, diagonalization. Now, the, the label is incidental. We don't need to call it that. It doesn't really matter what you call it. But you need to call it something because otherwise you can't notice it. it, it it's not visible. So the idea of calling it diagonalization is it just shows it up and it makes it visible to us. And, and what it is, is the idea that time and time again, different choices that we're forced to make, that society wants us to make, are, are both sort of reductive versions of a beautiful biblical harmony. Let me give you an example. So in Genesis 1, we've got this, this wonderful example, this wonderful language, haven't we, of the image of God. Uh, Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. And, and there are two elements to that. Uh, there's a huge dignity that's accorded to human beings because of everything in the created universe. We alone are in the image of God, the creator. You know, not a beautiful starry night or a school of whales, the Milky Way, a beautiful flower. None of that is in the image of God, only humans. So there's a huge dignity to that. Uh, but at the very same time, there's also a humbling, isn't there? Because we are the image, precisely of God and therefore not God, uh, not, so to speak, the top dog in the universe. That, that, that is for God alone and we are his image, we are not God. And so there's this beautiful harmony of, of human dignity but also human humbling. And, and there's no sense in the image of God motif that those two things are in tension with each other. You know, it's not sort of half dignity and half humbling, but there's a beautiful harmony. But what does modern anthropology do? Well, one way of looking at it is this that it takes those two elements of the image of God, rips them out of their biblical context and rips them apart from each other and then sets them in opposition to each other in the following way. So many people today will say things like, uh, we must face the uncomfortable fact that human beings are basically just machines, very complicated machines, but essentially machines. There, there's no difference other than levels of complication between us and machines. And people have been saying this throughout modernity. You know, Thomas Hobbes in the opening paragraphs of, of his great foundational text of modern political thought, Leviathan, just comes out with it straight. We are cogs and springs and strings and wheels. That's what we are, you know, live with it. And, and, and there's a string of other uh, thinkers, uh, uh, Julien Frilamétrie with his uh, book, uh, L'homme machine, the man machine. You know, we, we are essentially machines. And, other people will say we're simply animals. There's no difference between us and the animals apart from you know, some sort of level of sophistication. We're essentially the same thing. That's what one way that, that, that modernity tries to understand who we are. But there's another way that modernity tries to understand who we are as well. Uh, and that is, uh, and I'm getting this from the early chapters of Theology and Social Theory from John Milbank, we, we actually think ourselves, of ourselves as gods. And not any old gods, but the gods of voluntarism 
the gods for whom nothing is impossible. And this idea of nothing is impossible is really quite extreme for many of the voluntaries. So, you know, they will say things like, for example, um, God is not constrained by the laws of logic. If God wants two and two to make 37, he can, because his will is unstoppable and nothing is an impediment to his will, even the laws of logic. Uh, and so there's, there's a way of conceiving of ourselves today that, that sort of we're invited to, to lean into, um, that is, you must define reality for yourself, uh, you must define good and evil for yourself, and indeed you must define yourself for yourself. Uh, and that is what it means to be fully human. And so we've got these two very oddly juxtaposed anthropologies, you know, modern society saying to us, you are a machine, oh, and by the way, you're also a god, now go live. Go figure. Uh, and you can see how that is very psychologically burdensome. You can see how that would tie people in knots. It's a very uncomfortable thing to try and conjure with. So to diagonalize that distinction is not to split the difference. It's not to say, oh, well, you know, we must be half machines then and half gods. No, no, no. It's stupid, isn't it? That would be a ridiculous thing to claim. It's to say both of these anthropologies are, are partial and dismembered misrepresentations of a beautiful, harmonious, biblical truth that we made in the image of God. And so what we should do is not split the difference between being a machine and being a God, but, but if you like, trace and reverse engineer back to, to, to the full of harmonious biblical truth that these things are both partially grasping at and distorting. And, and therefore, I think sometimes people talk about things like diagonalization as, as a third way that's sort of okay, but I think it's a bit misleading because it makes it sound as if you start with the dichotomy and then you try to do something to either reconcile the two poles or sort of have some woolly compromise and meet in the middle. Um, I, I prefer the language of a, a first way because God's, the image of God was there first uh, and modernity has, has twisted and misunderstood it. So what we're trying to do is recapture an original way of thinking, a biblical God's way of thinking about human beings, rather than sort of mess about trying to split the difference between modern alternatives. So that's diagonalization. The second move that I found incredibly helpful in my own thinking over the years, and that I use a lot in the book, um, is called by my friend and colleague uh, Dan Strange, subversive fulfillment. Um, he gets it from the missiologist J.H. Bavink. Uh, where's Gray? Not, not your Bavink, Gray. <laughs> the other one, um, and uh, but but I think it's 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 paradigmatic expression is actually in one Corinthians one. So I think it's what Paul is doing in one Corinthians one, and then Bavink and others have, have sort of picked it up from there. So what is happening in one Corinthians one? Paul looks attentively at the cultures in which he's living, and, and he picks out some key values: uh, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Um, and later in the passage, it's clear that these miraculous signs have to do with power. The Jews are looking for a manifestation of God's power. And the brilliance of Paul's cultural critique in 1 Corinthians 1 is that he does two things with this value. And it's the combination of the two, I think, uh, that is just gold. So first of all, he draws a very clear antithesis between what the Greeks and the Jews think they're searching for and what he's offering, the word of the cross, as he puts it. You know, he says the word of the cross is, is foolishness and weakness. So Greeks, you want wisdom. Sorry, I've only got foolishness for you. Uh, Jews, you want power. Sorry, I've only got weakness. And, and that, that utter antithesis between the two, like this is not what you think you are looking for, is never watered down. 
in the whole passage. There's a very strong sense uh, that the cross does not look attractive to you. Uh, this is the opposite of what you think you're looking for. And if that's all that he said, all the sort of people who want you know, clear blue water between Christ and culture and, and who want to say, you know, we must come out from among the world and, and we must oppose the culture, will we'll be cheering in the stands. You know, Paul is our guy. Look, look what he's saying. This is foolishness to the world. This is the opposite. But the brilliance is that as well as saying that, he says something else as well, which is very curious. He says that the, this foolishness of God is actually wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So what's he doing at that point? It's as if he's got some sort of scale of wisdom and strength, isn't it? He says, let's, let's plot your wisdom down here, uh, dear Greeks. Now I'm going to put God's wisdom on this set. Oh, look, it's up here. It's a lot wiser than your wisdom. And at that point, he's saying, if you are serious about searching for wisdom, I've got a challenge for you. Are you willing to look for it in the last place that you would ever think? The stupidity and foolishness of a condemned criminal strung up, bleeding to death, dying on a cross. What you consider to be the height of foolishness. Because, Paul would say, if you are willing to look for it there, you will find a, a wisdom, the riches and the fullness of which you can't even imagine at the moment. You think you're after wisdom. You ain't seen nothing yet. Look at Christ. Look at the foolishness of Christ. And there you will find true wisdom. And, and the, the brilliance is that he does both of these together. And they don't water each other down. It is still foolishness in the eyes of the beast. He's calling them to repent, isn't he? To turn around 180 degrees. Leave at the door all your current ideas of what you think wisdom must look like, okay? If you're willing to do that, you will find a wisdom, uh, the, the, the riches and depth of which you have never imagined. Uh, and it's that combination of antithesis and fulfillment that, that Dan Strange and others are seeking to express with this idea of subversive fulfillment. So subversion in the sense of this is not the wisdom you think you're looking for. Uh, you need to, to set aside Everything you think wisdom needs to be, you need to turn around 180 degrees repentance, that's your subversion. But fulfillment, the wisdom of God is wiser than human wisdom. This is actually the only way you're going to find true wisdom. This will fulfill your desire for wisdom, but not in the way you think. So that's subversive fulfillment. Um, and I, I just found that incredibly productive uh, in engaging uh, with, with uh, modern and late modern culture. So... As I draw to a close, uh, let me just share with you um, a couple of things that are on my heart of, about what, uh, by God's grace and, and in his sovereign purposes, I, I, I hope the book might be able to achieve. Um, I hope that it can show that the, the fights that we sometimes have uh, uh, among ourselves as Christians in terms of how we should relate to culture uh, 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 are really often very fruitless because the, the antithesis people throw stones at the fulfillment people, don't they? You know, you're, you're, you've drunk the cultural Kool-Aid, you, you know, you, you're stop being down with the Romans, it's embarrassing, you know, you, you need to put clear blue water between you and the gospel. And the fulfillment people do the same, you know, they're not off the hook, are they? They throw stones at the antithesis people. You know, you're utterly irrelevant, you're not contextualising, you're not showing how the gospel is relevant to culture and so forth. Um, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 shows us a beautiful way uh, to be full out on antithesis, to unload both barrels on antithesis, and yet to be 100% invested in fulfillment as well. I just think that's a, a wonderfully healing pattern for us as, as, as Christians to be thinking about. So I'm, I'm hoping that the, the book might, might help some people to, to sort of lean into that 
uh, 1 Corinthians 1 pattern. I I'm hoping that, um, again, by God's grace, it might help some people to, to be more, I suppose, on the front foot as, as Christians in public. I don't know how you guys feel here, but, but over in Australia, it often feels that the only time Christians are ever talked about is when we've been beaten over the head with a stick uh, by the media uh, or in public. Um, and that's obviously a shame for Christians, but I, I might make so bold as to say that it's a shame for the whole of society as well, because the, the, the Bible does have unique and to modern ears really fresh and unexpected things to say. Uh, about some of the major issues that we're dealing with as a society. And if that voice is excluded from the conversation, then I think everyone is, is the, the poorer. So I'm hoping that it might help Christians to cast a positive vision uh, for uh, what the Bible has to, to offer to public debate and for the Bible's message uh, in the public space. And my final hope uh, for the book is that there might be uh, some people with itches, not unlike mine uh, as an undergraduate, uh, who might find... Uh, if they stumble across this book, a quicker way uh, of scratching it than the 20 years it took me to try and put all these pieces together uh, and come up uh, with biblical critical theory. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode on the topic of biblical critical theory. If you'd like to know more about Reformed Theological Seminary and the classes that we offer here, please find us online at rts.edu forward slash Washington, or you can just go to the link in the show notes for this episode. We'd also remind you, if you're enjoying the faculty podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. We love having this time with you, and we look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, take care. Thank you.